Hello, and welcome to the Antioch Fort Worth weekly podcast. At Antioch, our desire is to cultivate a passion for Jesus and his purposes on the earth. To connect with us in community, partner with us through giving, or visit on a Sunday morning, please visit AntiochFortWorth.com. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon from lead pastor Jamie Miller. It is, it is fun to preach this sermon today uh, on creation uh, a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, well, it's, it's fun to talk, to preach this to the church, to believers, to listen to your praises and to know you're out there walking the walk and it's not easy. So I just, this morning, the idea is to encourage your step and to clarify your witness this is, a, this is a series Jamie started, the story we find ourselves in. And I'm the one that's doing the podcast. They have not been up because of illness with the technician, but they're up. There's three podcasts just for your information so people can track that. And there will be one, and Jamie will be continuing next week. Secondly is uh, two books that I recommend. Genesis 1 and 2 has obviously been studied a lot and reflected on and disagreed about. But uh, John Walton's book, little book, the, the, the Lost World of Genesis 1, and Ian Proven, Discovering Genesis, two books that are wonderful guides. These people guide me through that ancient literature. It's a joy, though, to talk about the triune God of love, eternally Father, Son, and Spirit, creates. Uh, an old, uh, old song, morning has broken, blackbird has spoken, praise with elation, praise every morning, God's recreation of the new day. You know, Abraham Heschel, the Jewish philosopher, theologian said, life does not begin with a problem, it begins with wonder. I mean, Wonder. And I lost it. It's like wonder of just this morning. Uh, Gracie Allen, who's uh, a comedian of the middle 20th century, said that at birth she was so amazed when she looked out that she could not speak for a year and a half. <laughs> I love that. Tell that to yourself every day to help yourself rediscover wonder. You know, kids actually can talk. They just don't because they're in shock. I love that. Let's look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And, and I want to begin with context is everything. Genesis was not written by somebody down the street and put in your mailbox. It was written for us, but not to us. We're in the big river, the river of faith. And what we're talking about today are the headwaters back up in the, in the mountains of God, in the mountains of God's revelation in the world. We're talking headwaters today. We're way down river, but it's the same river. So the creation, listen, three contexts, the biggest one, the the. Creation, there's a lot about creation after Genesis 1, a lot. In fact, you might say that the bookends of the Bible are Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created. And then the bookend on the other end, Revelation 21 and 22. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation. So God, the whole theme of the Bible is not, you're really bad and you need help. That's not good news. You can you know, spin it any way. You can market it. It's still bad. The good news is creation, new creation. And the person that, that really, when, it, when everything is stalled and crashed, and there's a head-on collision with sin in the middle of it, the one that makes this happen is Jesus. He's in the middle of that story. So this is the background music for your whole life. The worldview of creation, new creation. 
And what Genesis 1 and 2 is saying is this, that the God who liberated Israel from Egypt and liberates us in Christ, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That God has created the world. And he holds it together all of the time. You know, that's, you know, I just need to offer the invitation now. This, this is all, this is it. I mean, how, how do you get, how does it get better? Well, the second part of the, of the context is this. Why are we reading Genesis? It's an old book. It's like 3,500 years old. You know, the reason why we're reading this morning is because Jesus quoted it as authoritative words for your life, and he rules the cosmos. Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen, and, and ascended Jesus rules, and he shall reign forever and ever. And he told a bunch of guys that came to him trying to get out of their marriages. They were looking for the foundation for divorce. He gave them the foundation for marriage. He said, he said, guys, Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4 is not the word of God for us now. They were quoting this to him. What does unclean mean? How can we get out? He says, the word of God for the church, for my disciples, and that's us. We're in the same river. The word of God is Genesis 1, and he quotes Genesis 1, and then he quotes Genesis 2. This is why we're concerned about this this morning. These are the words, these are authoritative words for the disciples of Jesus in the end times. Not everything in the Old Testament is. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying Deuteronomy 24 was written as an accommodation to sin. It's not the word of God for the church now. You know what? They, they said, Jesus, we didn't like that answer, and they walked away. The third, the third context is Moses. Moses, by revelation, goes and leads Israel out of Egypt. And then... Moses is the one that evidently composes orally and then written Genesis to Deuteronomy to disciple Israel. Let me, let me, I want to unpack this. This is really at the heart of what I'm telling you about this because we're going through this story and Jamie's building on it going into 3 through 11 next week. That Moses leads Israel out of Egypt to Sinai. But see, Israel's been in golden calf country. Golden calf country, Egypt, for 400 years. They've been brainwashed. They're clueless. When he gets up on the mountain, they're building a golden calf, and we think, how stupid. No, really. That's what they've always been doing. And what Moses realized, man, I got, I got a major discipleship issue here. A golden calf country people been in there 400 years. We're going to disciple them. God help us. No wonder Moses says, I ain't leaving uh, Sinai, Lord, unless you go with us. Because these people are dangerous. Uh, th this is what is going on here. And so what he does is he's writing Genesis to Deuteronomy, and he says, your story is not the one that Ammon Ray told you down there in Egypt. Genesis 1 to Deuteronomy 34, this is your story. And this is, this is the struggle of the entire Old Covenant Scriptures because they are congenital idolaters just like we are. So Moses writes Genesis Deuteronomy narrative to disciple Israel into following the I am God who revealed himself to him at the burning bush. See, there's lots of gods. Elohim is a generic word for God. But Moses is, and so it's not enough to say I believe in God. It's not enough to say I believe in God now. You know, I believe in the I am God, the Lord God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't just believe in generic God because he might just be a warm fuzzy. He might just be your higher power. He might be lots of things. So I am God. What Deuteronomy what Genesis to Deuteronomy says is he, what Moses is doing is discipling Israel into following the I am God, to be his covenant people, to execute his mission, to be a light to the nations. 
So when we read Genesis 1 to Deuteronomy 34, in Deuteronomy 34, they've gone from one guy in Genesis 12 to two million or so on the edge of the promised land. What we're looking at here is the gospel according to the Pentateuch. It is the good news. There's good news in the Bible before Jesus. Now, he's the biggest news. But the good news is that God is doing something to put this world back together, to put this earth back together, to put relationships back together. That's what's happening here. So what happens is this. A lot of times we read Genesis 1 and 2 as if it's not in a narrative. It's not, it is in a narrative. It's not standalone. Genesis 1 and 2 begins the story that he's telling them you're in this story. It reveals the I am God's identity as one person. Everybody else is talking polytheism. The more gods, the better. One person of covenant love, Yahweh Elohim is the big word for him. It just means the Lord God. In your Bibles, when it's translated Lord God, it's, talking, it's translating these words. And it's the Lord that is the covenant loved one name for God. Elohim is a generic name for God translated just God in your, in your Bibles. After Genesis, the magnificent joy of Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3 through 11 described the disastrous rebellion. We played God. Human beings played God. And it just goes from bad to worse. It's violent. It's idolatrous. And in Babel, there's all this alienation and misunderstanding. So alienation, violence, and idolatry from 3 through 11. We know this. Morning is broken, blackbird is spoken. Yeah, I get up and I look out and I say, yeah, that's true. But man, is Russia gonna invade Ukraine? Is he gonna leave his wife? In other words, Genesis 3 through 11 and the chaos of sin is all around. We don't just live in that idyllic world of Genesis 1 and 2 anymore. You know? And so we live in a place that's what's called fallen. So at the very end of Genesis 11, it's, it's really, this tells you, this is telling Israel who they are. In Babylon, God calls Abram. And he calls Abram a Jewish guy. He calls him and says, I want you to bless everybody else. I want you to be the father of a nation that blesses everybody. See, this is, this is what is so unusual is this is what God is doing here. There is such graciousness coming out. See, there's not any Gentile, I mean, not any Jews described in Genesis 1 through 11. So what God is doing with Abraham is for the sake of everybody else. In other words, there was, as Ephesians 2 says, we were dead. But God, rich in mercy, that's what Genesis 12 is saying. Okay, wow. So then it just, the story is about restoration and redemption from there. So no wonder that 1,900 years after Abraham, God's got a long memory, really good memory. <laughs> Paul says it's about the faith of Abraham. And that's, that's what must characterize the ecclesia and not keeping the law of Moses. And, and he say, what he's saying here, what we're saying here is this. God reveals himself to all the nations, but he only reveals himself to Israel and then the church for the sake of everybody else. Some people really get on you and say, you, you think God just loves the Israelites and he, and he just loves church. No, 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 no. This election thing is an instrumental thing. It's not an exclusive thing. We're, we're elected in Christ for the sake of everybody else. That's what the narrative is saying. That's who we are. That's why this church is missional. That's why this church is out there planting churches. Because of the story we're in. Not because somebody said, you got to do this. No. The story has changed our identity. And our identity changes our behavior. 
And not only that, the presence of the Holy Spirit equips us to do the story. Because see, you can, you, can be, you can have the greatest story in the world, man, and it's just like a nursery rhyme unless you got the Holy Spirit. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be great to live in that little world? We don't live in that little world. This is hard to do this. It's hard to get outside of ourselves. So this is, the, this is what is happening in the story. And so, but there's a problem here. And this is moving on here is that Genesis is directed, remember back to the golden Kaffirs, to educating and discipling a brainwashed, clueless people. I'm not knocking them, man. If you've been down there in Egypt 400 years, we'd be in the same condition. That's where they were. They've been in captivity this long. And so what happens here is we have warring narratives. We have worldviews that are warring. That's what's happening, and that's, that's why he has, to, he has to give them Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy 24. There are warring narratives in their heads. Let me, let me explain this and you, you understand what is going on in, in Genesis. First of all, there's the Egyptian gods are in their heads. D Joshua chapter 24, verse 4. Joshua, this is at the end of Joshua, about 100 years after the Exodus or more. Joshua says to Israel, Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped in Egypt. In other words, get them out of your suitcases. Get the gods out of your backyards. They are still into idolatry. So the struggle is to, to bring them to the one God of Genesis. In, in the Canaanite, in Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 5, the Canaanite god Baal is referenced by Jeremiah. And so you it said, Jeremiah 19.5 says, they have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal. That's what's going on in Israel. And that's still going on in Jeremiah, which is eight, nine hundred years after this. The Babylonian Marduk God is alive in Israel. Jeremiah chapter 50 verse 2 says, Marduk will be put to shame, her idols filled with terror. This, this, is, this is the context of Genesis. This is why Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You know, this, is, this is the battle for the mind of Israel, what going on here. That's what Genesis is about. In Jeremiah eleven thirteen, 13, this is even 800, 900 years after this book is written, Jeremiah said, Israel... You have as many gods as you have towns. So Genesis is written in opposition to the Egyptian Amon Re story, to the Baal Canaan story, to the Marduk Babylon story, because these stories are the ones that all the Israelites know. And so what, I'm, what I want you to understand here is this, because we, we get into this text here in just a minute. But the reading of the text that's most faithful to the text and to the Lord is the one that takes their world seriously, not ours. That's how you show love to God and to the text is by listening to and engaging with what the original author intended. And once we understand the incredible message of Genesis through Deuteronomy, we bring, the Holy Spirit brings that message into the church now. Well, we don't start off by thinking we know this because I don't. These stories, see the myths around Israel, let me talk a minute, all of them were accidental earth myth stories. We live in, we live in a sea of people right now who think the whole world, the whole creation is an accidental story. They're living in, in a world of the ancient, in the ancient myths. The com all these people around them believe that the earth and, and human bodies have been created by fights between gods. 
Earth is a product of war. It's dark and it's violent. And there's many gods, and the moon and the sun are a god, violent, fickle. There's no creator. There's no redeemer. This is what these folks believed. Moses tells a story of one God who created the world and who's now out to bless the whole earth. Hear, O Israel, the Lord of God is, is one God. There's nothing like this in the ancient world. There's nothing like it now. And so we in this church here are what I call, and hang with me, I appreciate you hanging with this because I want us to just see how powerful these scriptures are, is that we believe in creational monotheism. One God, he's not us, he's, dis he's out there, but he's not distant. One God has created the world, and now he's redeeming the world. That may sound, well, that's simple, Jim. Well, all around us, nobody really agrees with us. And they're evangelizing you. They're telling you you're a bigot. They're telling you that there's something wrong with you. So if we are creational monotheists who believe that God loves the world, that means that Israel, the Lord God's people, exist for the sake of a creation in trouble. And we're not a bunch of narrow-minded people who just think we're the only ones going to heaven. That's not the, that's not the message. That's not good news. That the Lord liberates Israel from Egypt. Not to just, just to go out and have a party in the desert. He liberates, Egypt, he liberates them from Egypt to disciple them into his message, into his image for the sake of everybody else. One Lord God of eternal loving holiness has created and is now create, recreating the world. The Lord God is beyond us, but he's not distant. He is near us, but he is not us. This is who we believe in. A God who rules over us and who is covenant with us. Jeremiah even says that he's got a covenant with the day and the night. And so let's look at, let's look at Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, Knowing the background, the context, God created the heavens and the earth. Now look at this. Now the earth, there was already stuff here. Now the earth was formless and empty. And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. You know the stories. It goes through six of these. But look what happens. I'm just going to bring out a few points here. The whole thing starts with chaos. Chaos is our greatest enemy. Chaos. Chaos in your life, chaos in my life, chaos in our country, chaos in the world. We, the whole, creation begins with a formless, empty, and dark chaos. So in, in the beginning, God creates the world. It was formless and it was empty. Chaos is about formlessness, and emptiness. So what happens in this creation, you know, this creation story? The first three days are about filling. No, I'm sorry. The first three days are about formation because there's chaos. The last three days are about filling animals, vegetation, and humans because the chaos has created emptiness. So what happens is the creation is about order. Order. Instead of formlessness and chaos, we have form and creation. 
G.K. Chesterton says that order exists so that good things can run wild. I love that. The idea of running wild, especially. But really, it, but actually, make sure you get all of it. Order exists so that good things can run wild. Order doesn't exist so we can run wild. That's not the point, but this, order, this is about order. And so what I want to say is there's so much good in the creation. It will take you 20 lifetimes to explore it. You don't need to look at evil. You don't need to go after evil. There's so much good, you know? Isn't that true? Y'all talk a little. Yeah. See, when we talk about how bad we are, we think that's really the story. Man, the story is the goodness, the deep down goodness in all things. And this is what's being said in the story. Now, in this story, you have two creation accounts. May not have seen that, but it starts with chapter one and goes to about chapter two, verse four, and then chapter two, verse four, all the way to the end of the chapter. So there's two accounts there, and they do not describe the same sequence of creation. You know, they don't describe the same sequence of creation. Vegetation is before humans in the first one, and it's after humans in the second one. Because why? He's not concerned about that. He's concerned about, he's concerned about order. He's concerned about form and filling. This is not, he, he's not trying to write a scientific thesis, uh, kind of thesis here. He is, he is talking about the who and the what of creation, not the how and the how long. That's what he's doing here. He mentioned a disk or a vault in the sky. That's simply that ancient cosmology. He's not a scientist. He is accommodating to ancient cosmology. I can tell you that science right now, as Einstein said, cannot tell you what's valuable. That, that is a great admission. That means you don't know what to do with the technology you've got. You're gonna have to get a word from somewhere else. And you can see what we did with a lot of technology. We killed 177 million people with technology in the 20th century. Powerful technology. Our technology outran our morals way faster. So science is our friend, and we are friend of science. There's no real conflict here. I got a guy that really, you know, I'm not going to go into this. I got a friend that's a young earth creationist, and hey, that's great. And he wears his T-shirt in front of me. You know, I don't know. I have not bought an old earth creationist T-shirt. Because <laughs> I'm not going to fight on that hill. You know, between here and Abilene, uh, there's Ranger Hill. If you watch for it, you'll see it. It's 80 miles from here. I'm not going to die on Ranger Hill. My life's going to be spent dying on Mount Everest. Mount Everest is the issue. Does Jesus Christ rule the world? That's the issue. Has he created and redeemed the world? And is he coming to save it forever and ever? That's the issue. I'm going to die there. When it's over, I'll just drop dead there. But not on Ranger Hill. There's too much going on there. My dear brother who thinks that and his interpretation is different with mine on this, praise God. He's probably a better person than I am. I'm not worried about that. But I think the battle that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 6 is the battle as to whether Jesus Christ is Lord. And that, I want to tell you something, that's contested. That's a contest. That's a contest. You're going to get it back. You know, we need to understand that when, when people are writing these ancient documents, how they say what they say actually determines what they're saying. And we have to be careful in interpretation. 
And I, you know, I'm always in the process of learning. The poet that says, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night is not talking about a tiger being on fire and dying. He's talking about a glorious tiger in the night. That's what he's talking about. Let's, let's move on, though, here in Genesis to, the, to something that's so powerful. In, in the pagan myths, these combat myths, in the creation of the world, the last item that is put in the pagan temple was an image of the God. Now think about this. The last item that goes in the temple when they're building a temple is an image to the God and probably an image to the king. Well, in Genesis, you know, it's because the king, this is something else that's important to know about this. This is why I, I love Genesis 1 and 2 and I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus and you know Jesus was right about this. Should I be shocked he was right? But you know, he's, he's saying that uh, everybody's created in the image of God. Did you know that in the ancient story, all these kings, all these countries around Israel at the time only believed the king was made in the divine image? Nobody else was. So human life was simply not valuable. So contrast that with this. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 to 30. God created humankind in his image. In the image of God created he them, male and female. That's an in-your-face statement. That's like, hey, you guys that are reading those combat myths, listen up. In the image of God, he created male and female? Notice there's no mention of a king here. You know, Israel's the first country in the ancient Near East to begin without a king. And it wasn't a good idea when they brought him in. So God created humankind in his own image, and the image of God created them. Male and female created he them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So in Genesis, male and female are created in the divine image. I want to tell you, this is what's called a polemical document. It's like Israel. Listen up here. This is... You know, we can't keep doing the combat myths. We can't keep worshiping these gods. We got to tear these gods down that are in the backyard and get those gods out of your suitcases and throw them away, burn them up. They don't belong anywhere. They're telling you about stuff, even about yourself, that's dangerous. If you actually believe you're not made in the divine image, you're just trash, what does that do to your life? So he says, be, you're, not only that, he says, you represent, what, what he's saying here is you represent me in the creation. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. In Genesis, male and female are created in the divine image. So all males, not just the king, but then also all females equal image bearers. This domination thing happens at, after sin comes in. You need to get that part of the story right. That's where that comes in. So they're created in the divine image, equal image bearers. In fact, woman in, in chapter 2 is called Ezer or partner. It's translated help me, but nobody knows what that means. So Ezer means partner. God's called Ezer 17 times. He's partners with us. That's what this is about, two partners. This is the basis of the high view of human beings in the history of Western civilization. That this is who we are. It's the highest view of human dignity on the planet. Still is. This is what this is, what this is about. The image of God refers to our calling to represent the creator in the creation, to steward and subdue it. 
you know, when I was practicing law, it's like I can either be, a, I can be a pastor or I can be a predator. I can be a minister of chaos or I can be a minister of creation. Everybody here in this room, when you go out the door today, that's your choice. We are called to be ministers of the creation and the new creation. It's our vocation, people keeping, earth keeping. When we play God, we lose that. We lose our sense of calling unto the Lord. Jesus redeems us and restores us to himself. And you know what Revelation 5 verse 10 says? That in the, in the coming kingdom of God on earth where human being, all of us are resurrected to live forever and ever, he says we will be a kingdom of priests to our God and we will reign on the earth. That's the restoration of the calling of Genesis 1. That's what that's about. That's why this is creation, new creation. He's describing to us eternally living out our calling. We do this now. Let me, let me just do, I've already done some so what's, but let me do a few of these, uh, the last part of this. In Scripture, like with Paul, there's a calling, and then there's a walking. I beseech you to live a life worthy of your calling. So we have heard about the calling. I've been declaring to you the calling of the Lord on you this morning. This isn't an exercise in having a nice little sermon here. This is us as the church saying we're in the big river. This is us. This is a story you find yourself in. Tremendous story. We just have a better story. I love telling it. Hey, even I, I can't screw it up. It's really hard to screw this up. This is the story then that, the, that Jesus says we're in because he says this is the word of God for us. The story gives us identity as the people of God who exists for the sake of everybody else. It gives us identity, and because it does, it drives behavior. But we have to get those, you know, we have to get all that other stuff out of us. We got too many things running around in our heads. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Hear, O church, the Lord our God is one God. This drives behavior. All of this is going this direction. Mission. So that's the first, so what? Secondly, that if all of us are created in the divine image from the get-go, then the least among us has the right to life. The least among us. That these are the found, this is the foundation of biblical justice. The word justice appears a thousand times in the Old Testament because this, you know, we are do something. It's not just the king made in the divine image. When, the, when the, this story said the king is not the image bearer, all of humanity is. You can't, you can't overstate how revolutionary that was. And it changes the way you, you do your life. It changes the way, I mean, in the ancient world, killing a little kid was nothing. Infanticide was nothing. Even by the time of Jesus, no big deal. You know. So the, the fact is that the biblical story changes all that. The most helpless have the right to life. They, we, that life exists, in my view, I, I can't come to any other conclusion from conception to death. Conception to death. But we need to understand that the right to life is just not about your rights from conception to birth, but from conception to death. We are concerned about unborn children being killed. And we are also concerned about children starving to death. And we are also concerned about Alzheimer's patients being cared for who do not know their name anymore and who do not certainly don't know God's name. Nobody's rights in Christ or on this planet are now dependent on them knowing God's name. Their rights are dependent on God knowing their name. And he does. The first murder 
It's God that says, wait, come on, Cain. The blood of your brother cries out from the ground. Third, so what? Now, I, I, what I'm doing up here is not something that a Republican politician will do or a Democratic politician. Uh, I'm not in either one of their or whatever, whatever they do. <laughs> what I'm doing, and I'm talking about stuff that you might hear a Republican get really excited about, and I agree with them. And then I might be on something else that you might even hear a Democrat say they're excited about. But then you'd, you'd also hear me saying some stuff that would cause the Republican to say, Jim, you're a wild-eyed liberal. And then on these other, some of these other issues, you might, have, you might have a Democrat call me a bigot. So, I mean, you know, just don't worry about all that. <laughs> That's the whole point. Don't worry about all that. You know what I'm concerned about today? I'm giving you some so what's on the story. And if it kind of creates a little indigestion, that's okay. <laughs> and if you are exhilarated, that's great too. But I don't expect us to hear a prophetic word, if there's any prophetic words at all here, and be happy about it. Most of the prophetic words I've heard, I hated them to start with. <laughs> and by the end of the day, I was repenting. But, but the third word here is, if, if you believe that we are here to care for the creation, to steward it, then we're to be people keepers and earth keepers, and that we're here to honor our stewardship calling. Then why keep polluting the planet? There's just no reason for this. It's dangerous. Now, I know it, it, climate change may not have happened, though a lot of people think so. I'm not a scientist today, and I'm not playing science, and I'm not playing politics. I'm talking the story. I'm saying if the, story, if the story says that we're all created in the divine image, it's on us. It's on us. It's not on the king. It's not on the president. It's on us. And that partisan politics has nothing to do with this. This is about stewarding, living out the calling of Genesis 1, 27 to 30. Global warming may be contested, but why put a gun to your head even if it just has one bullet, and keep on pulling the trigger. Why do that? So what this means is this, is that if you take seriously the story, you find yourself concerned about the rights of the unborn, abortion, and creation care. And you don't belong in any party. You follow Jesus. Both I'm arguing. Maybe I'm wrong. You can talk to me later. If I'm wrong, if I had, you know, if it, I just stroked out on this and this really has nothing to do with anything and neither one of these issues have, to have anything to do with the story, then okay. But that's my read of the story. And I think, I think at the end of the day, there's always so what? And we need to answer that. But I want to hear some, now I'm going to switch gears a little bit on number four and say that I'm concerned about gender chaos because we were created in the divine image, male and female. Gender has something to do with your genitals. I'm serious, I wanna be candid with you. This is, this, I, I am totally empathizing with people struggling with same-sex struggles and sexual identity issues. But man, when we are actually teaching and and, not, and we're not countering the teaching that, that your gender has nothing to do with your gender and you get to make up your, your sexual identity as you walk along, that's chaos. We're back into the formlessness. Remember that? We're back into formlessness and emptiness. I want to tell you, I, I revert back to formlessness and emptiness like that sometimes. All, all in we're given form, remember what Chesterton said, we're given form and filling so that good things can run wild, not just that we can run wild. So gender chaos, and I, I know of, I have a friend that lectured on this that I heard last year, and she wept about the confusion with many people who are hearing about this, and I talk to my grandkids about this, and link, and they're being pressured by different ones and all that. And you know what? Under the American Constitution, 
I defend the right of all those to believe that gender has nothing to do with sex, but I want to get up in the church where the First Amendment gives us the right to preach the text and tell the story we believe in and say that we don't agree with that. We have a loving disagreement with that. And that that is going to bring chaos back to the world. That what we're doing now is using the created order to run wild. We're not using it so that good things can run wild. But I also want to say this. There are other sexual identity issues other than this one. The males who came to Jesus in Mark 10 to ask about divorce were suffering from gender confusion. You may wonder how. They had a false vision of masculinity. A false vision of femininity. A false vision of masculinity is a gender chaos. Is gender chaos. They believed in a masculinity that just has no boundaries. A masculinity that I see here now that plays the boy. Men trying to be boys. A masculinity that says, I'm wired for sex, but I'm not wired for marriage. That's a gender confusion. You don't know which story you're in. You've gotten out. You've got them running through. The true story of the world says that we live under the majesty, within the limits. And third, to explore and share the inexhaustible goodness in us and around us. I mean, life is so good. There's a corruption, baby, but, it, but life is good. So we are asking God as this morning, I just ask in your life to pray for God's goodness to run wild in you whatever that looks like. Morality for Christians is not negative. Don't do this. Don't do that. It's about explore the goodness because of the creation. When you start the story with how bad we are in Genesis 3, you cannot end up at a good place. We start with creation. We end with new creation. And so the way that we can possibly live this this morning, that, that in, in, our, in, our, in our time together, as we uh, have some ministry time, is there's some, there's some evil passions in our hearts. In my life, I've had to learn how to look at women, for example. How to look. I don't know how to look. Just try, you know, start looking in the wrong way. It's a leering thing. I'm not seeing this as a divine image over there. What am I seeing? I, I don't know, but I'm not in the story, man. I'm doing something with my eyes. I've been taught to do it. Technology takes me to do it. That screen I look at may teach me to do it. But so there's all kinds of stuff going on in our heads, and, I, and you just hearing a sermon is not going to change it. But I want to tell you, the Holy Spirit can change this and will change it right now and help you. And... But when, you, when we have passions that are disordered, and our big, one of our biggest issues is disordered passions, the Lord doesn't want you to get rid of the passion. He wants to redeem it. And the power to get rid of, a, of an evil passion comes from the expulsive power of a redeeming passion, the passion the Holy Spirit brings. So we want to ask for the Holy Spirit. We ask for the Holy Spirit right now, Lord, to come and give us good passions, godly passions, passions that come from the creation, that everything else is a parasite. Pornography is simply a parasite on the good. Everything else, all the sins. Just take in the good and, and run wild. So, Lord, may your Holy Spirit work in us right now. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. I thank you you never give up. 
You never give up on us. And this is such a, this is, this story that's old, it, 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 it's comforting to us. It's comforting. Come Holy Spirit. Bless you, church. Just bless you in your lives. Uh, would you, would all the, would the musicians and the prayer team, musicians come up and the prayer team come up? And would you all stand, please? There's, there's two things that uh, move me from chaos, move us from chaos to creation. One is the Holy Spirit moving powerfully, and secondly is the church. And so come and get somebody else's hands on you and ask them to pray. Because the Holy Spirit in this room, in my experience with church, you know, how many times I didn't even want to go to church or I didn't even want to go to preach, but man, I was blessed when I got there because of the Holy Spirit in you. And so just come and be prayed for this morning. Pray for people right around you. Feel free to, to allow the Holy Spirit in you. You say, well, I'm all messed up. Well, I want to tell you, God works through all messed up people all the time, all the time. Just think of David, he commits three felonies in his life, and yet he's Psalm 51. He's a powerful man of the Spirit. And God says he's a man after my own heart. So, Lord, as we are enter into this ministry time, just come and be with us and help us to submit ourselves to you and come and be prayed for, pray with each other. Uh, wake us up to how good it is and what we're missing sometimes. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Just come as you're moved to do so.